welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. We're doing our week ahead special like usual on Mondays. Chuck, uh, tell me how you've been. I know you were in um, Vermont last week, right? I was. Yeah. Actually, um, I'm going to uh, wax eloquently on how gorgeous Vermont is. You know, I... I, Even in the winter? Oh my gosh. It it was just beautiful. You know, and I've... My wife reminded me, I said last week that I had never been to Vermont. She reminded me that I had been. So I think we're down now to just Alaska and Hawaii as the only two states that I've not been to. I I certainly, yeah, I had never been to Burlington, Vermont, though. And Burlington, Vermont is a gorgeous city. Um, You know, I I see so many places around the country, and I, I like a lot of them for different reasons, but very few of them are places where I feel I could live. And Vermont was definitely one of those, you know, Burlington, Vermont was definitely one of those that fit that very narrow place of not only did I like it, uh, but I could live there. I mean, I really could. The, the people were fantastic. Uh, they were enjoyable to be around and to chat with. I liked the quality of the, the conversation. And the city itself is just gorgeous and where it's positioned is beautiful. And they just seem to be doing a lot of things right. Yeah, um, the photos look really nice. Oh, is it about yeah. the same size as um, as Brainerd or different? Oh, no, it's quite a bit bigger, quite a bit bigger. Oh, okay. And yeah, it, 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 not, in a, not in an overwhelming way, but, you know, just, yeah, it's, it's quite a bit bigger system. Uh, the, the, the towns there are more compact. They're, they're tighter. They're, they're, they're more East coast. And so mm-hmm. you get kind of the, the nice quality of city that you get uh, along the Eastern part of this country. You, you get that there. Um, but you also get, you know, the, the hills, the mountains, the, the, uh, the great lake there, um, Lake Champlain sits right there. Y- y- you have a, a population that is, pretty educated and intelligent. And I just found interesting person after interesting person while I was there. I just, I I really liked it. Yeah. You were speaking at a business association summit, right? And that's not very typical for your events, right? Usually you end up speaking at, if it's a conference type thing, it's like APA or ULI or something like that. Um, Am I right in that? No. no? Well, Have you yes. At I mean, things I, I think the difference between this one, we, we do a lot of things with business groups. I mean, I, w- when I was in um, Oklahoma City just a couple of weeks ago, that was with the Downtown Business Association. Uh, oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. But a lot of times it winds up to be those kind of groups. And, and this group had, a you know, a, I think like a broader cross-section of businesses than just, there was a, certainly an emphasis on downtown businesses. But the meeting itself was quite a ways outside of the downtown in a industrial park at a, mm. at a, a, a gorgeous off, you know, facility where they make snowboards and like related gear. Uh, and they had a, a huge meeting room there that we packed like a hundred people into. It was, it was really like a well organized, well run event. Um, so yeah, I, I got to meet a lot of the, the business community. And then I got to meet some of the elected officials and, you know, there's other people around town. It was, it was a very impressive place. Really impressive. Excellent. Yeah. And this week we're going to Los Angeles for two different events plus a staff retreat. Um, tell me about those events. We're doing one in Los Angeles and one in Pasadena. Yeah. 
Um, well, the, the main thing that I know about those events is, I, th- I want to say 75 degrees and sunny. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, let, let's just say Burlington, Vermont, you know, when I got off the plane, they told me, they said, it's, it's kind of chilly here. And I said, I'm from Minnesota. And they said, oh, well, no big deal then. Um, was it colder than Minnesota? Oh my gosh. Yes. It, 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 it's, How is that possible? Well, because they're on the east side of the Great Lakes and the wind off the water was just, oh, oh my gosh, it was frigid. Yeah, it was really, it was really frigid. You know, so I mean, you didn't do a lot of walking around the picturesque downtown. <laughs> I did as much as I could tolerate, but like the first time I went out, I didn't even bring hat and gloves. I mean, I, I went out with my thick winter jacket and I looked at the temperature and the temperature was like 15 or something like that. And I thought oh, I'll be, I'll be just fine. Oh my gosh. It was so cold. Yeah. With the um, wind chill. Yeah. Yeah. The wind was, the wind was the really tough part. I, I think I could get used to it and obviously you know, I, I wore a hat and gloves the rest of the time and was okay. But, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to be in LA where it is supposed to be uh, quite a bit warmer than it is here in central Minnesota, or I'm guessing in, in Milwaukee where you're at, mm-hmm. uh, Wednesday night, I'm going to be doing, uh, the transportation, the next American city presentation in essentially downtown Los Angeles. And then the next night we are going to be in, I want to say Pasadena, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll be doing a curbside chat there. Uh, the first night, Jason's going to be there. So it'll be Jason and I and Jason Schaefer, our member support specialist. And then the next night it will be Jason and I and you and Yuri all together in one happy place in Pasadena. Yeah. And then the next, um, the next day and a half, we've got staff retreat kind of stuff. That will be really a lot of fun. I'm, I, I, I love doing these things together with everybody. And so, yeah, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, me too. It's good to see everyone. Uh, it is, right. you know, and we make this remote thing work. Um, you know, we, we've got ways of communicating with each other pretty regularly. And I, I feel like we all keep in touch really well. But mm-hmm. there is something to be said about all being in the same place at the same time and being able to look into people's eyes and, and have, you know, a, a different kind of conversation. It's, it's time well spent. Yeah. I feel like since we're not around each other all the time, when we are together in person, we make absolute maximum use of our time. Yeah. And especially for brainstorming future projects, it's, it's really good. So I'm glad we get to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I will go through our newest members for this week. We had Jason Ball from Durand, Michigan, Jake Banton from Columbia, Illinois, Brian Bolin from Cincinnati, Ohio, a good Midwestern contingent there. Oh, yeah. Stephen Cross from Revelstoke, uh, British Columbia, Chris Cunningham from Pasadena, California. Chris, I hope you come to our event. Uh, Roger Horn from Olympia, Washington. John Fallis, Jennifer Cooper from Sherwood, Oregon, Brian Lindbergh from Burlingame, California, and Kevin Staunton from Edina, Minnesota. Welcome, everyone, to Strong Towns, and thanks for becoming a member. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. So, Chuck, today you wrote about um, you wrote about how minorities, women, um, are not always included in our perceptions of like the, the historic development pattern that we often emulate and talk about at strong towns. And you kind of made an argument for, first of all, that's not 
Well, I'll let you talk about it. I, yeah. Well, I love, I, first of all, I love that that's what you read into it. Cause that's not what, <laughs> if you would have asked me just like, what did you write today? That's not what I would have said. Um, well, those are the issues that I care a lot about. So no, I appreciate it. And I, I'm glad you read, I'm glad you read that into it. I, you know, I, I got asked a really good question when I was in Olympia last month about the traditional development pattern. And we, we talk a lot about, and I, in the curbside chat, I show a lot of pictures of, this is what Brainerd used to be like. This is uh, how it used to grow. And I go through the whole incremental and then I show them the Taco John's and the old and blighted block. And then I show the, the down, the historic downtown and compare that to the big box store out on the edge. So th th there's a, there's a narrative uh, there that comes from my community and the way that it was 140 years ago up to the present. And someone stood up at the end and asked, you know, I, I appreciate what you're saying about the financial impact of this. And, you know, I, I get the point you're making about incremental growth. But when we look back at those early days of your hometown that you're kind of being nostalgic about, those were kind of despotic times. I mean, those were times when not only did we have disease and, you know, I, I said cholera today in the, in the piece, you know, but these were also times when you had an economic system that depended on exploitation of workers and, you know, child labor and, uh, you know, not respect for, I mean, women in the early ones weren't allowed to vote. Certainly minorities were, were not given full you know, respect of citizenship. How do you reconcile that development pattern with that economic system? Are they closely linked? And, and you know, it, what's the difference? And I, I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant question because so often as planners, as engineers, we sit in our silos and we ignore the, the economics. And, and, and even when we're economists, we tend to maybe look at numbers and not look at people and their lives. But it, it's, it's very clear that this pattern of development uh, was kind of hand in hand in many ways with uh, an, an economic, a social economic system that was very despotic. I, I make the point that, you know, you, you have the economic system of feudalism, uh, which had a certain development pattern that went along with it. You, you had the economic a system of state terrorism that went along with antiquity. Uh, you know, what, what is, I just found this to be like a brilliant, brilliant question. So at the end of the day, and, and I'll skip the most of the article, I'd encourage people to go read it. But at the end of the day at, at strong towns, I think we acknowledge that, you know, we're, we're not going back to 1910. We're not going back to 1920. We, we don't think we should. It's kind of nice to not have burn barrels and outhouses it's kind of nice to be able to, you know, have people in our society be equal participants. Those things are progress. We're not going to go back. But in this great unknown that we have ahead of us, where we have seven decades of this suburban experiment, we can see clearly that it's not financially viable. We're going to have to unwind it uh, to, to one degree or another. The question of how do we go about doing that, we can look back at those traditional development patterns and say, look, there's a lot here that we can learn from that we can take and incorporate into what we do today with our modern sensibilities, with our modern ideas of justice and, and how the world should work. 
And in fact, when we do that, or, or you know, when we go about bringing those things, the incremental development pattern uh, of that traditional way people built, what we see is that we can actually we can actually make some inroads on attacking some of the social ills that have come out of our current development pattern, the the, the gap between the rich and the poor, uh, the high level of indebtedness that we see, the disenfranchisement of the wage class that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. These are all things that a, a different development pattern in combined with a different economic paradigm would could really take a dent out of. And yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not suggesting that strong towns, we have all the answers to every social ill, but I do think that an approach uh, along the lines that we've been discussing now for many years would be one that would be more consistent with our, our current sense of justice and fairness than a system that we are currently kind of trapped in. Right. That was exactly what I took out of the article as well. Like this incremental approach where we have small businesses, we have the ability to like live above a store that you own or live in a more modest housing option. Those are so much more accessible to people who have less money. And those people tend to be minorities and women disproportionately um, rather than the suburban pattern, which has big box stores where you can work a crappy minimum wage job and then somehow try to afford this huge lot with this McMansion on it. I mean, that's just not accessible to so many people, especially minorities and women. So, Well, and it's even to the people that it is accessible to in the sense that they can get the loan. Um, you know, you then become a debt slave and, you know, right. you, you, there's a lot of questions over whether that quality of life is really what we should be striving for anyway. Um, we're, we're going to be in Los Angeles. And one of the things that I've been, I've been to Los Angeles half a dozen times. One of the things uh, about that whole area that stuck out to me for years, and it, it took me a while to figure out why were the, the donut shops that were mm -hmm. run by, and I'm going to show my ignorance here, run by some Asian immigrants. And I, I, I know that saying that I, like, I don't know what country predominantly, uh, they come from, but I do know that when I would go into these donut shops, there would be people who English was not their original language. They were clearly of an Asian origin and, and they were in there basically bootstrapping this donut shop. Uh, not very luxurious. Um, not very high end, but they would fit them into all these strange places, little strip malls, uh, you know, uh, little, little vacant spots between two buildings. Mm -hmm. it, it occurred to me that, you know, this was essentially a way of making a living that I think people who are used to, uh, let me say a harder life or, or, or you know, a harder life than what most Americans grow up you, you know, grow up experiencing, uh, it's something that I think they could see like an opening for, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I contrast that in the piece and I've done this a couple of times with the Dunkin' Donuts, kind of our version of it in the suburban experiment. And the Dunkin' Donuts is one of these places where if you want to start a Dunkin' Donuts store, you have to have a half million dollars net worth, uh, half of that, a quarter million dollars, of which would be liquid. So in, it's sitting around in cash. It's, it's, there's no 
you know, Asian immigrant. There's no immigrant from anywhere who's coming here with a half million dollars net worth uh, to start, or you know, going to start a, non-immigrants too. <laughs> well, not only that, but yeah, then you get into Americans who have been here multiple generations, and you would hope had you know built up the family wealth. I mean, that 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 was the the way things went in in past times. Is that you know, you built up family wealth, and that was passed on and passed on. Um, you know, that has been stripped out as well, and. I, I take some like joy in these donut shops because I, I see uh, a whole class of people. And I, this is what I wrote about in October too, with the, the migrant issue. Mm-hmm. It's a whole class of people who don't have the kind of cultural constraints that we have that are really out there kind of making things happen. Despite the fact that it's kind of ridiculous to start a donut shop when at any point Dunkin' Donuts could just open up the street, you know, with yeah. with all the subsidies and all the kind of playing field tilted towards them, uh, I think a lot of us, you know, who are native to this country, don't even try it because we know how big of a risk it is um, mm-hmm. and how fragile that approach is. I would actually like us to get back to the point where that's not a fragile approach, where that's actually an approach open to everybody an approach that everybody feels is natural and they feel comfortable taking because it's really the way we build entrepreneurs and not just donuts, but, you know, all these different categories of local service things that we farmed out to franchises and national chains. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That kind of, the, the talking about immigrants who have started restaurants, um, I'm going to bring us to our next topic, which is usually talking about the reading list, but I want to talk about a movie that I recently saw that I absolutely love. Um, that's very related to this. Um, it's, it's a movie called the search for general. Tso, and it's basically about the history of Chinese immigrants in America and how they've started restaurants, um, and kind of how that model has developed and been like a very viable business option for people who are coming to this country and don't have a lot of language skills, don't have a lot of money, but they're able to set up shop and create this really delicious product. Um, and it's like a huge thing, you know, every city, even tiny towns have a Chinese restaurant now. So, um, that's a really cool movie and it's on Netflix. So everyone should check that out. The search for general. So, I will check it out. I haven't seen it. You know, we here in central Minnesota, uh, I've commented before that, you know, we have a lot of diversity here. We have uh, Norwegians and Swedes um, and the occasional German. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, not a uh, diversity for us, maybe not for other parts of the country. Um, We do have, though, this really uh, kind of exciting group of Hmong immigrants that mm-hmm. largely located in Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, a, a generation and a generation and a half ago, really, but have found their way to other parts of the state. We also have a lot of Somali immigrants that are first-generation Somali immigrants. More south of here, like an hour, than here, but there are some that have made their way uh, up to the Brainerd Lakes area. And it's exciting to watch... Um, how they they do tend to uh you know undertake just entrepreneurial endeavors that i think 100 years ago would have been a natural thing for someone coming to a community that we just like culturally never even 
consider doing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, starting the, a business so risky. How do you get a loan? How do you get is. a space? Yeah. But you know, I, I, the one um, there's a, a nail place where they do um, like foot the the manicure pedicure kind of thing, mm-hmm. and it's like wildly popular. And I've, you know, went in there and bought like a gift card for my wife and stuff. And it's, you know, I, there's something about like the energy of the place where, you know, I, I, I'm not suggesting these people are well paid. I'm not suggesting that these are like great jobs that people should aspire to. But the fact that, you know, they're, they're doing this work, uh, filling an important niche in the community, uh, you know, serving people and, and in the process, helping themselves, uh, I, I really find to be an inspiring model. And I, I wish we could find ways to make that easier and make that more universal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we, we go to great lengths in this country to say we, we are for small business. We support small business. We have all these small business loans and programs and what have you. But really when we look at it, small business in this country is, way, way, it, it, it starts largely way beyond what you would historically call a bootstrapping endeavor. And I think there's a lot we can learn from people who get the bootstrapping mentality uh, and let that kind of mentality infect a, a broader range of people in our city. And I, you know, I, I think we can build a, a lot of wealth and a lot of success for a lot of people that today are pretty you know, left on the margins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, have you done any good reading lately? I'm, I'm, I started a book uh, at the end of last week called The, the Dead Hand. Uh, it was recommended to me. Um, it's a story of basically the Cold War and nuclear uh, proliferation and also kind of the, the attempts at disarmament. And it, it's, it is mind-blowing. It's really kind of freaky. I mean, I, I was born in 73, and so I was in grade school during uh, the 80s and remember, you know, the, the Berlin Wall coming down and all that towards the end of high school. For me, uh, it, it's weird to go back and kind of relive some of that, but now as an adult and, and reading actual news accounts instead of getting them through the weekly reader or what have you, uh, you know, the, the, the term, the dead hand is actually a, a Soviet, uh, thing that they had developed, but never deployed. And the idea was in the mutually assured destruction of atomic weaponry, if your side was completely destroyed, you would have a dead hand, basically like a computer algorithm that if it didn't get shut off at a certain point, would just fire your weapons and blow mm-hmm. up the other side so that you could assure that they were going to be mutually destroyed even if you were completely wiped out. This is the insanity. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you, you think about that. It's interesting, too, because they would do these tests and they would go through and, like, simulate, okay, we're, you know, we're being launched. We've got to make a decision. You've got six minutes to decide whether to launch your own nuclear weapons and, and then you're going to be destroyed. And the, the problem that they ran into in the Soviet Union and here as well, but, but over there where we kind of looked at them as you know, these evil people, the people in the silos actually wouldn't turn the switch. They wouldn't flip the switch. They had six minutes. The bombs were coming at them. They knew they were going to be destroyed in this simulation. And it was a simulation. This wasn't even the real thing. Mm-hmm. And they knew it was a simulation. 
But then they got to the point where, okay, you have to turn the switch and launch your nuclear weapon. And a huge percentage of them couldn't do it. Like, I can't do it. Like, I can't. Out of, like, benevolence for their fellow man? Yeah, well, of of the notion that, like, okay, like, really, we're going to wipe out all life on Earth. That's what I'm turning the key to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the Soviet leadership kind of understood the notion that this system is really fragile because it depends on people being willing to destroy millions of other people, and they won't do it. That's, that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, it is good to hear until you realize that like the way they got around it then was to streamline the process and automate it and create things like this dead hand that would just do it for you, <laughs> yeah. you know? So yeah, it, it gives you a, a good sense of humanity as individuals, but also lets you realize that collectively we're able to do really ridiculous things. Yeah. Um, I'm also reading now. Uh, and it was recommended to be by one of our, one of our members, uh, the book Between the World and Me. And oh, I just I, got that from the library. I haven't started it yet. Okay. You know what? You and I read it together. Um, I started it last week and I, I, I've been kind of s- struggling with it. Um, not because I'm not the target audience. I think I am actually the target audience or at least part of the target audience. Um, but I think I'm struggling with it a, a little bit because of my like engineering sense. Like I'm not, <laughs> I, I was trying to explain this to my wife this weekend. Okay. Here's how I explain it to my wife. We were in church and the, the sermon this week, you know, we're in Lent and the sermon this week had a little bit to do with like Valentine's day and, and, you know, being kind to people in your life. And one of the examples he, the, the deacon talked about, he actually said wives, you know, or husbands, you know, you can uh, do things to be kind to your wife. You can uh, help out around the house and uh, pick up after yourself and, you know, help with the dishes and maybe cook dinner every now and then. And then, you know, wives, um, you know, you ask yourselves, you know, are you supporting the the hopes and dreams of your of your husband? Are you, uh, you know, respecting the, the, the toils that they go through on a daily basis? And I'm sitting there in the pew realizing that, oh, my gosh, this is like one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. Um, you know, and, and I've become oriented towards a male household earner and woman working in the house. And I mean, this guy's a generation older than me and I I get where he's coming from in life, but you know, I live with a very successful, uh, woman who's my wife and I have two daughters who I I think are going to be equally successful or perhaps more in life. Uh, you know, my aspiration for them is not that their husband helps out with the, uh, you know, helps out with the laundry every now and then, but that, you know, their husband actually supports their dreams and and understands their toils. So Mm -hmm. I get that. I would not, if I'm honest with myself, I would not have gotten that 20 years ago, having Mm -hmm. grown up in a, in a house with all men and, you know, not really had that worldview and certainly not had daughters and not had a a wife in the way that I do today. So I've grown as a person, right? Like I understand things today that I didn't understand back then. I think this book between the world and me is supposed to do that to me for me as well. And I'm kind of trying to open my mind and my heart to have that happen. But you know, some of my like, um, just like natural inclinations are, are struggling with it. So 
I'll keep on. You keep on. We'll talk about it in the future. And, and maybe I will, uh, you know, grow as a person in, in other ways as well. Sounds good. Uh, I want to mention something really quick before we sign off here. Um, for our podcast listeners, you may not have seen on our website that we have a new competition for who has the strongest town. Um, so we're holding this in March. It's going to be sort of like a bracket-based March Madness-type competition. Um, and we want you to fill out – it's a very simple form, just has a few questions uh, that kind of outline some of the strengths of your town – and then we'll we'll compete in March to see who has the strongest. And we want to encourage people to apply. We know that, you know, nobody has the perfect town. Um, but it's about, does your town have the building blocks in place to be better? Um, you know, do you have the the makings of a good transportation system? Do you have a way to be financially solvent? And are your citizens active? So I really encourage everyone to go on our homepage. It's just a little bit down on the homepage, um, you'll see the link to sign up and learn more about this competition. And even if you don't want to sign up, you should still plan to start voting for these towns um, in March. Yeah, I'm so excited about this because really what we wanted to do is have a conversation about what makes a town strong. And I think by, you know, actually looking in the real world at a couple of places and asking some questions and, and you know, the goal here is not to point out flaws, but actually to point out strengths and say, you know, this town is doing really good in these areas and this one's doing real good in these areas and kind of develop a sense, uh, amongst ourselves and our, our, our members and our audience of, you know, what kind of characteristics are we looking for? Um, we, you know, we are going to be in a sense kind of curating this and, and teeing it up for people but we're going to let the world vote and yeah, we're going to, we're, we're, we're aiming to have 16 different cities that we can kind of compare and contrast over the course of three weeks and end up with one uh, kind of coming out on top as having a, a lot of the things going in the right direction of, uh, of what would, what it would take to be a strong town. So this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, me too. And, you know, if you live in New York City, please apply. If you live in a town of 600 in the middle of Montana, please apply. Oh, please. Because there is no uh, guidelines or rules in that regard. Like, everybody's welcome. So find that on our homepage. Uh, All right, everyone. Have a great week, and uh, we'll talk to you again next Monday. Take care. 